One of our society's most common complaints is stress. Stress and anxiety. We're worried about everything, even about our levels of worry. And of course, when you worry about your worry, you do indeed have problems and stress, don't you? Now, my father was a man of worry. He always worried. I remember visiting him once and the whole place was gloom. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, haven't you heard? And I said, uh, no, no. He said, it's terrible. And I said, what, what, what's the problem, Dad? And he said, Mexico's defaulted on its loans. I think there's no one else in Australia who is living in worry over Mexico defaulting on its loans. I said, well, you don't have to worry about that. He says, why? What's wrong with worrying? He said, a little worry doesn't hurt anybody. It's, only, it's a private problem. I'm not inflicting it on anybody else. I enjoy my worries. He's the only man I know who ever enjoyed worrying. It was a free activity as far as he was concerned. Didn't cost him anything, didn't hurt anybody else, and he could do it any time he wanted to, even over such issues as Mexico defaulting on its loans. So you're having today a man who's been raised by a man who believed in worry, speaking to you about worry, which is a worry, isn't it? So what are we actually worried about and what should we be worried about? Well, we come to our next part in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 25 of chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's how the passage commences for today. And down in verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. But what is this anxiety? Both the Greek and English words involve a care and concern about the future outcome. There's the overtone of fear about the future, fear of failure, and therefore fear of the future. And it leads to an excessive concentration on matters now because we fear failure in the future. Uh, being a feeling generation, we describe this worry and anxiety in terms of, of our nervous agitation, uh, of the sweat on the brow, of emotional turbulence, of, of a stomach butterflies, of trembling, of sweaty palms and things like that. But the Bible idea of worry and anxiety has much more to do with action, seeking after things, running after things, concentrating our efforts on things. So look down to verses 31, 32. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It's anxiety that is running after things, seeking after things, doing things, rather than anxiety states that the Bible is talking about. And within this passage, Jesus is challenging those of little faith, as he calls them in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today uh, is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the sea, into the oven rather, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It's a way of saying, O you faithless. You see, faith is the opposite of anxiety and worry. For the problem in our heightened activism is our lack of confidence in God. We think we have to do everything ourselves. 
We think we're able to do everything ourselves. And so we don't trust God to provide for us. We don't rely upon his power, upon his goodness, upon his provisions. I have to take control of all matters in my life. (laughs) I don't. God is in control of all matters in my life. We see ourselves controlling the future, which of course is a nonsense, isn't it? The decisions we make and the actions we take all have consequences, all have results. In fact, it's because of this that we are motivated to do anything. I mean, if you believe your actions have no consequences, well, then you just become a fatalist. You just go with the flow. Don't don't do anything, just let it happen to you. And you become demotivated from ever taking any action. It's because we know that our actions now have consequences that we act and do things for those good consequences. But the trouble with our actions is that though they have consequences, and some of these consequences can even be reasonably predicted, yet we are not God and we cannot predict accurately or be sure of any of the consequences of any of our actions. After this Bible study, I plan to climb down, go around the corner there and get a cup of coffee. But I may not be able to do it. I may trip on the step and break my leg and never get there to the coffee. I might get over to the coffee and it's actually urine hasn't been turned on. I mean, there's any number of slips between the cup and the lip between me here and even getting a cup of coffee. And if I can't be in control of even just going around the corner and getting a cup of coffee, how do I really imagine I'm going to be in control of what is happening in my life next year or the year after or let alone in control of my children? Now, there's a lost cause for anybody, isn't it? You only have to have a child to know that that's beyond your realms of possibility. See, we're not God. We're so like God that we make decisions and take actions and do things and yet we are so unlike God because we're not able to control the future. Jesus concludes this section with the command down there in verse 34. You see, don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. But the real anxiety problem in this passage is not our little faith nor with our desire to control the future. The real problem is the object of our anxiety, what we're being anxious about. It's not that we are anxious. My father was right. There's nothing wrong with being anxious. The important thing is what are you anxious about? We are so often anxious about the wrong things. We seek constrain, and run after the things of this world rather than the things of heaven. And so the challenge of the passage is not seek nothing, but, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus doesn't say, you're anxious, stop seeking, stop running, stop thinking, stop looking after, stop being anxious, stop worrying. No, 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 he's saying, don't seek after those things, seek after this thing. The difference is the object. So the passage is an attack on Gentile anxiety. 
the anxiety of the Gentiles, that means the nations, the nations who don't know God, the people who are not God's people, they are anxious about what they eat and what they drink and what they wear. For verse 32, you see there, Jesus said, for the Gentiles run seek after these things. And these are the objects of the disciples' misplaced anxiety as well. So in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or nor about your body, what you will put on. For when people turn their back on their creator, they always worship the creation. And so the people of little faith, the people of no faith, spend their time and efforts on the creation, on food, on drink, on clothing. And such anxiety is critiqued by Jesus as futile and unnecessary, for it's about the things that are actually unimportant. See, it's futile because being anxious is not going to add a single hour to your lifespan. Being anxious about food and drink is not going to feed us. It's God who feeds us. Being anxious about our clothing is not going to make us any more beautiful. It's God who provides our beauty. You make make whatever effort you please to feed yourself and to dress yourself in splendour, but it's ultimately God who determines the outcomes. He will give and take as he pleases with or without your permission. Some in the height of their glory are cut down in a moment by a heart attack, by a stroke. We must never forget that God is in control, as it says in the book of Proverbs. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Remember that part in the epistle of James. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year and, uh, there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist in, that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Oh, if we could be in control, then things like the global financial crisis wouldn't happen. But there we think, well, I'll invest here, I'll make money there, we're in this boom period of the economy, and overnight... The values of our dollars change. The value of our whole commercial system changes. The world melts down. All beyond our control. You think you're in control, but it's a deception. But Jesus' critique is that it's also unnecessary. God knows what we need, and he'll provide for us. Look at the birds. He feeds them. Look at the flowers. They're dressed in their glory. And he dresses them. And are we not of greater value than the birds and the flowers? God arrays the flowers with wonderful beauty and yet they're cut. They wither. They're thrown away the next day. We keep worrying about things 
that are ultimately unimportant. What's our life about? It's surely more than what we eat and drink and wear. Verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Of course it is, of course it is. It's not that you don't need food and clothes. Very glad to see you're all clothed. I think it would be an awful Bible study to have a nudist Bible study. It's very nice to see that we've all done the right thing and got clothed for the sake of all of us. No, clothing, is we, we need these things and we certainly need to eat. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, verse 32, and all these things will be added to you in verse 33. Nor is it that we should not bother preparing food or sewing clothes as if our heavenly Father will just kind of drop from heaven food onto our dinner plates and had clothes onto our backs. It's just that life is more than what we eat and what we drink and what we wear. These are matters of small concern that need to be dealt with functionally, quickly and without worry. Dealt with from day to day without consuming all our efforts and our life and our mind and our aspiration and our dreams and our hopes. Here is the challenge to today's materialism. For having given up on God, the atheists, the materialists, claim that there is nothing in the universe other than matter. And then our atheistic friends, the chattering classes, you'll find them complaining that the trouble with society today is it's too materialistic. Well, guess who made it that way? Philosophical materialism always leads to economic materialism. The two are directly connected. If there's nothing in this world other than this world, then there's nothing to live for in this world other than this world. It's just the outworking of philosophical materialism. And we all know, including the materialists know, that materialism doesn't make people content, satisfied or happy. It doesn't make life meaningful or enriched. They complain about economic materialism, but their own philosophy has nothing more to it than economic materialism. As the book of Ecclesiastes warned us, there's nothing new under the sun. What Jesus told his disciples not to live for, people are still living for. What the Gentiles, the nations of Jesus' day were chasing after, people are still chasing after. There's nothing new under the sun. See, what is our society about if it's not about what you eat and drink and what you wear? Look at the magazines, go into your newspaper shop and just look at the magazines and what are they about? It's about what you eat and what you drink and about clothes. The, the, the newspapers produced the, the Good Living Guide and what is the Good Living Guide about? The latest restaurants, the latest recipes, the latest fashion. That's what's the, that is the Good Living Guide, that is the good life. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Uh, look at the, the amount of time that is spent in the magazines about recipes and vintages of wine and, and fashion or the endless TV cooking shows. Now, please do not get me wrong. I love eating. I've been committed to it from a very early age and I'm really good at it. And I have got the great benefit and joy of a wife who loves cooking 
and I love her cooking and we've got a very happy marriage in this because there's a complementarity about her love of cooking and my love of eating. But if that was all our marriage was about, it would be a pretty poor marriage, wouldn't it? And if that is all our life is about, it's a pretty poor life. But to endlessly spend our entertainment watching how to cook in edible foods, to actually think that this is really what matters, that this is the good life, to move from one series of cooking entertainment to the next, to the next, and one grand cook to another, and one great reel to another. What a stupid waste of time to think that we've invented the magnificence of communication like television in any and every home to spend it on something as stupid and as banal as to how to cook food. It really is ridiculous. Oh, it's possible to be more sophisticated and talk about possessions other than food and drink. Uh, the boat show, the car show, the computers, the mobile phones, the overseas travel, the real estate prices. But at the bottom, they're all still the same thing, really, when you can put them together. We're obsessed with these things. Not only are we bombarded with them with the advertisements, advertisements about food and drink and clothes, we're entertained by them. Fashion makeovers. Discussions of different wines. Oh, the fruity bouquet that this one has. We're entertained with better homes and gardens and shows with house makeovers and garden redesigns. Friends, we need to take into account the reality that these things are unimportant compared to our lives. There are people dying of starvation and we're discussing on television nicer recipes. That's obscene. We're doing nothing to help the people in refugee camps who don't have enough to eat while we entertain ourselves with gross food that is totally unnecessary. What we eat, what we drink, compared to our lives, are nothing. They are transitory and ephemeral. What you taste with such gustatory delight one day is down the toilet the next. Food is nice, nice food's even nicer, but it's just fuel for the body. It's all just pre-digested sewerage material. That's ultimately what food is. You, you live, but you don't live for it. It enables you to live. Get a perspective on it is what our society needs. For the materialists and for those who do not know God, there is no alternative to, to the meaning of their lives. They are born, they, they drink till they're old enough to eat and they're dressed till they're old enough to dress themselves and they acquire possessions and sensory pleasures until they're old enough to die. And that's all there ever was for them. They are, as the psalmist puts it, Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. And later at the end of that same psalm, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Are you not more than a beast? Well, if all you do is live to eat and drink, well, no, you're no different to the beasts. And that's ridiculous. 
And so our society in its parliament is primarily concerned with the bottom line of economics rather than justice. Its education is concerned with jobs rather than knowledge. Its universities don't hold open days but career days because they're not interested in science but science and technology for careers. In its child raising, our society spends money instead of time, pursuing activities rather than relationships with our children. Children are taught in our middle class wealth umpteen musical instruments, lessons in every conceivable sport and skill, driven from one activity and one class to the next, provided with ever more coaching, but not given time to be at home with the family. I confess to being caught up in the same with one child who was ever getting her father to do things for her, with one child on one Saturday, having been to five events, she mentioned the next one I had to take her to. And it was only at that point in time, having driven back and forth across Sydney and now being asked to go to Parramatta for a sixth different event from the farm we already had, the father finally turned like a worm and said, catch a bus. But it took me five events before I woke up to the stupidity of what we were doing. See, that's what's so sad. It's to see Christians on the same materialistic treadmill. For we have an alternative to this world, but we're not taking it. It's not that Jesus said, don't be anxious, full stop. Jesus said, don't be anxious over food and drink and clothes, but be anxious over God's kingdom and his righteousness. For he taught us Christian anxiety. We are to seek something that the nations do not seek. We are to seek what they see as of no value. We are to seek the things that really matter. So look at verses 32, 33 here. 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's not that we are to seek, notice that rather, that we are to seek, that we are to pursue the things of God. The things that the Gentiles are anxious about, God provides. And what we are to seek, you'll see, is first. Now here it means first and foremost. We're to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. But before we look at God's kingdom and righteousness, let me just pay a word, attention to that word first. For while we are to speak things that are first, what is it that we're to seek second? Well, Jesus never says anything that's second. Secondly, could be seeking out other spiritual things like love, honour, truth, but all those things are the kingdom and righteousness. It's a word of emphasis. There may not be a second, but I think it's first before and above all things, things that the Gentiles seek after. There's nothing wrong with food. There's nothing wrong with drink. There's nothing wrong with clothes. Everything right with them. 
but they mustn't be first in our priority list. It's just completely out of perspective. What we must seek first and foremost then is God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what Jesus has come to bring. That's what he's announced as he's called upon Israel to repent. That's what his death and resurrection commenced. For those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he has promised in chapter 5, we will be satisfied. For entry into the kingdom of heaven requires a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, as he said for us back in chapter 5 and verse 20. And those who live in the kingdom will practice a righteousness before God that is real and genuine, not hypocritical and a show for others, as he said in chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. It's the righteousness that we seek that our Heavenly Father will, in reality, reward. For we will be laying up for ourselves treasures, treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. For where the heart is, There is your treasure, and for where your treasure is, there is your heart. Here is the Christian anxiety. Here is what we are to seek and what we will live for. It's not the here and now. It's not the money that we serve, because no man can serve money and God. It's not the things of this world that we'll be anxious about, but it's the coming of the kingdom of God. That's our first priority in all of life that the name of Jesus will be honoured, that the cause of Jesus will be furthered, that the saving work of Jesus will be prospered. See, what's your prayer? What you pray shows what you're concerned about. What's your prayer? Well, I'll tell you what your prayer is. It's that God's name be hallowed, that God's kingdom come, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we may taste tomorrow's bread of heaven, that we may be forgiven and live to forgive others, that we may be protected from the evil one. That's our prayer. That's the prayer our Lord taught us to pray. And when we pray that prayer, we're praying for the coming of the kingdom of God. Is that really your prayer? I don't mean rattling off the word by memory. I mean, praying the prayer of Jesus. For this should be the things of our concern. We have to go to work. We have to cook meals. We we have to clean our houses. We have to wash our clothes. We have to mend them. But, But that's not what we're living for. They're just the things that enable us to live. What are we living for? Well, we're living for Christ and we're living for his kingdom. We're living for justice of God to be done in this world and we're living for the gospel to be preached to all the nations. We're living so that others may be saved and come into the joy of knowing God. 2004, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that Australians are spending on their pets $2.2 billion a year. That compares to the nation's foreign aid spending of less than $2 billion. We spend more money on our pets than we spend on the needy of the world. That's appalling. Richard Dennis, the Deputy Director of the Australian Institute, said, 
pets bring joy to millions of Australians. But it seems our priorities are out of kilter. Growth in the number of pets accounts for only a small proportion of the expenditure. It's the new spending on premium pet food and upmarket accessories that accounts for the splurge. Dogs used to be fed bones and meat scraps. Now they can be fed on gourmet foods like dried pig's ears at $107 a kilo. I'll let you into a secret. My wife never buys me anything to eat that's $107 a kilo. $10 a kilo and she's getting nervous. $107, that's unimaginable. Dr Dennis said, it's gone so far that we've had to invent diet pet food for our overfed pets. At the same time as reading that humorous stupidity, at the same time you can see the dreadful gut-wrenching photos of starving children in the Horn of Africa, the pathetic plight of humans destroyed in a war and wars that have been waged for decades. Even non-Christians can see the priorities are, as they said in the Herald, out of kilter. Out of kilter is not what I call it, I call it obscene. But what are the millions who are yet to hear of the Lord Jesus Christ? What of our neighbours, what of our families, what of our citizens of this city who have turned their back on him? This is our concern. This is our anxiety, this is our prayer, this is our life. For if you're not concerned about the lost, it's prima facie evidence that you are one of the lost. For those of us who have been found wish that all will be found. Those of us who have been saved wish that all would be saved. If you're not concerned about others, then it's evidence that you are in the same position. And if you are concerned about them, then put your wheel to the shoulder. Join up with the Missionary Society, the Church Missionary Society, of whom Peter is a representative. You want to find out about it? Ask him at the end. I'm sure he'd be only too glad to tell you about it as we spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus around the world through that great missionary organisation. There are, of course, many others, but that's the one I'd support. And as we seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness first, well, there'll be added to us the things that we need. I mean, we're going to have refreshments. If I can get down there without breaking my leg, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. Nothing wrong with that. And they're provided by people here at the cathedral who have the kingdom first in their priority. It doesn't mean that we don't cook and clean. It doesn't mean that we don't serve coffee and drink coffee. It just means we think there's more to life than coffee. Isn't there? You'd never know it if you read the coffee snobs of Sydney. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for the kingdom and his righteousness. We thank you for calling us into that kingdom and praise you for the privilege of being able to call you our Father and him your, our Lord. And we do pray, Father, that you would help us to set our priorities clear that we would not live for this world but for the kingdom that is to come so that when we live in this world 
we might bring justice and righteousness, peace and truth, salvation and mercy to many others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.